Okay, so this morning on my Lambourne with Mick Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. A familiar face to many. In well, the welcome to day. my humble abode. Well, thanks for, thanks for inviting me. Um, you've been in the game all your life. Yeah. Starting with pony racing, uh, a jockey for 20 odd years. Yeah, I didn't, I never actually did any pony racing. There's no pony racing for me. I had to learn on the fly. And I think that's why I was so bad when I started. Um, and, you know, do you know what? I think a lot of the lads that start off now are at a disadvantage compared to what we were because nobody really noticed how bad you were until you got noticed and then you had a chance to actually be better because of all the mistakes you'd made previously whereas now with you know with sky sports racing with racing tv every race is televised so every time somebody has a ride somebody's got a microscope on them whereas for us like i was rubbish when i started but I learned from the mistakes I made and I got better. So by the time people actually started to notice me, I'd, I'd had like over 100 rides. And if you've got that much experience, it makes a huge difference. And so where do, I, where do I get the pony racing from then? No idea. No idea. One me. One me. <laughs> but, so now you're a TV presenter. Yeah. And you've been a TV presenter for probably as long now almost as you were a jockey. Yeah. Um, so was it, was it the Bought all the horse originally that attracted you to what you do? The horse. It's always been the horse for me. Um, like I, I, I'm, I lived in a, in a town, uh, lived in Killarney um, for many years. Um, then we moved back to Wexford. Uh, my dad's family are from Wexford. And one of the lures was that they would buy us a pony. So I've got an older brother and a younger sister. So we shared the pony uh, and it, it basically went from there. My dad's a mechanic. Um, and my mum was a cleaning lady in a pub. So, you know, we, I had no racing background at all. Um, my dad used to fix cars, but he used to do little mixer jobs in the evening uh, to help pay for the ponies. And I got noticed riding a, a pony one day, and then one of the lads that was getting his car fixed said, oh, we're actually looking for somebody to help out at the local racing stables. Do you think your son would like to, like a job? And my dad asked me and I said, Oh, well, yeah, yeah, okay. My mum was mad keen on racing. My dad, not so much so. Um, off I went. Uh, I was 13 at the time, and I rode my first racehorse that morning, and it changed my life forever because the thrill that I got from that 40 seconds up that gallop was like nothing I'd ever experienced. And I thought, this is like being in control of that much power just felt like something that I wanted to do. So from then on, like I've always just, like horses have been my saviour really. This is, that, that's my, my excuse. I've read about the ponies. I must have just assumed that you were racing. Them yeah. Because what else would you do with a pony in my mind? But that was. Well, <laughs> yeah, I was doing, I was doing local gym canners and show jumping. And um, I had a pretty shit time of it at school really. Um, but the one thing that always stayed constant was the horses. And horses don't, judge you by, you know, if you've got a disability, what colour you are, they don't care. You know, as long as you're nice to them and look after them, they're nice to you. And like, that was the one thing that I found that when, no matter what else was going on in life, the horses were always pleased to see you and they were always constant. And that's what I loved about them. Right, now, I've, one of the questions is about your, uh, your childhood, which yeah. we'll, we'll come on to later. Um, before we do all that, it's going to be a bit back to front, but 
one thing that's always struck me about you, and I've not, I know you to say hello to, but yeah, don't yeah. know you. Um, you always you appear to be a man that wears your heart on your sleeve. Yeah. If something got your goat, or if you're upset, you're quite happy to express that on the TV. Um, what worries you about the racing game at the moment? Uh, well, the the biggest thing that worries me is that, you know, where are the new owners coming? You know, that's, I, I think that has to be the key. We have to make sure that the people that are providing the entertainment, i.e. supplying the horses that, you know, we can enjoy watching race, you know, they need to be looked after. And it has to, it can't just be a loss leading exercise like it is at the moment. Like you can't, I would dearly love to see racing that if a horse wins two races in a year, it pays its training fees. Now, the harsh reality of that is to have a horse in training, it costs 25 grand a year. So you don't need to be great at maths to work out that you need to win two pretty big races to cover 25 grand a year. So there is not many people in this business who are actually making money from having racehorses in training. So, you know, that something has to give and there has to be more money coming back for the people that are having winners. And, you know, where's that money going to come from? You know, I think they have to be very careful that they look after the people who are actually providing the entertainment. Yeah, because racing would have to have a plan B if what looks like is going to happen to the bookmaking industry. Yeah. You, you can't, like, you can't rely on the bookmakers to be the sole providers of it all. You know, like, there's a lot of people who are involved in this sport there's a lot of people who gain employment from this sport and there's a lot of people who love the sport you know so we have to try and find a happy medium between everybody so that the people who are actually funding the mechanism almost like the owners that they they actually feel like they're getting a fair deal so you know it's not just about you know the person who are paying to come in and watch like the spectators you know, the race goers, they have to be looked after as well, but they have to make sure that they look after the people who are, who own the horses. And the jockeys are having a bit of a bad time at the moment as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that's a bit of a hot topic at the moment. Um, the whip rules have been probably at the heart of a lot of the, the grumbles at the moment. Um, look, I understand that the... The sport is under pressure from outside interests. And, and this is something that I think people have to be aware of. We all saw what happened at the Grand National. We all saw that there's some people who don't like racing, who want racing banned. And we have to be on the front foot with that and say, look, we're doing everything that we can to make it as safe as we possibly can without taking away from what is the thrill of the sport. We have to be careful of that. So I think one of the big things was that in the Labour uh manifesto one of the things that they were going to get rid of was the whip in racing so suddenly i think a lot of people thought right okay we have to do something about this hence the reason they got on the front foot and they said right we're going to have to change the the way the whip rules are are laid out they had a steering committee i'm not sure that that did as good a job as they wanted it to do but the end result was that we had a whip reform and basically they said, right, okay, the whip reform is that we're going to only use it in the backhand position. Now, when they tried that and they trialed it and they had two weeks of 
um, grace almost where jockeys were able to try it and then they were brought in and showed how that would play out in the surgery and a lot of them were picking up bands which were only in theory bands because they were it was a trial period and they said this is not workable we can't work with it so a lot of people got behind the scenes worked really hard to try and get it going ryan moore was actually brilliant for a lot of the lads in this you know like ryan sometimes gets a little bit of stick because he doesn't say much when he's on tv but actually he really cares about what happens to the riders and you know he did a lot of stuff off his own back to try and help um and ultimately they got a change round, so they got the forehand position back but it just meant that they lost one so instead of it being um seven strikes being eight strikes it was seven um and also then for the flat lads they lost one as well the problem that they have and i think that the the key thing in all of this is the above shoulder height the hitting them you know out of sync you know like not giving a horse enough time to respond a lot of jockeys have been picking up bands for stuff like that like the above shoulder height thing i think is really tough to police if you see it coming from up here it's horrendous then you have to get expect a ban but if it's here and just here and it's like you're talking inches is it really that bad it does the man on the street actually think oh oh that's terrible he only he only used his whip three times but the three times he used it it was just over and then he's going to get what eight days for that it's lunacy you know they should actually i think not be as st sticky and as picky on stuff like that because if somebody watches it and thinks that's terrible it is terrible if somebody watches and doesn't even notice really does that mean that that jockey should be banned you know i think that's where they have to be careful and where you know the jockeys are up in arms a lot about this because a lot of them are picking up bands and they're not really you know understanding why because very often they feel they haven't gone over but at the same time if you if the number is seven and you hit a horse nine times you deserve to be done you should be able to count and that's where i think that you have the discrepancy if somebody is over and they know they're over and I, what i don't want to hear is somebody saying oh but it was running on no the number is seven if you hit it eight or you hit it nine you're going to get done you can't say oh but it was running on that doesn't work so i think you know i think the number thing is fine but i think the above shoulder height and hitting them you know like the, a few of the lads have been done for this thing that they call double tapping if you're watching it in slow motion trying to work out was that a double hit and you can't really tell well then it's not so i think that's where they've got to be a little bit careful now you mentioned the man on the street there yeah the average man on the street's yeah. not even watching is he because it even though it's the second most popular sport still most people aren't interested in horse racing whether we in it like it or not so do you think they're being people that don't watch it are being pounded to too much i think there's a fine line to be drawn here you know there's a lot of people who are trying to attract new people into the sport um that's i think great because if you get more people in yes it increases everything but i think you can't 
you can't cater too much for people who don't aren't really that bothered so i think you've got to be careful there as well you've got to look after the people who are really interested your core audience they're the ones that you have to really be interested in and but you also have to be aware that when outside influences look in at our sport they have to like what they see and i think we cannot ignore that and the obviously the grand national is an extreme case because it is a unique race yeah and those people trying to climb the fence at Aintree this year, you're never going to change their minds. No. Well, so they, they, you know, they want to live in a society where animals roam free. And we live in a plant-based diet world. Well, that's not for me. You know, I like my meat and I'm quite happy to eat it. So I'm all for everybody doing their own thing. You've, you've got to allow people the opportunity for peaceful protest. That's fine. If somebody wants to stand outside with a placard, you know, alerting you to something that they don't like, that is their right. And you have to give them that right. But when it boils down to what they were trying to do at the Grand National, that's wrong. Because a lot of those horses got upset before the National. And, you know, you cannot say that it was the, the sole reason, but it was definitely a contributing factor that, you know, there's so much at stake in a race like the Grand National for everybody involved. And it was just a shame that it was, it was ruined by a few people who were trying to, you know, get themselves noticed. I think, like you say, peaceful protest is everybody's right and they deserve to have that right. But I think when it boils down to something like that, what they were trying to do, I, you know, I don't think that was very fair. Okay, Mick, for a lot of people, um, younger people you'll be known more as a tv presenter than you would have been a jockey you know them having come into the game later uh you're one of the longest serving on tv having worked for bbc channel 4 uh itv racing at the races no sky sports racing um how much has it changed since you started well it's changed a lot um like i say every every race now is televised so there's no hiding place for anybody um and it is, it's fantastic that, uh, especially for the jockeys now, that they can look back and watch all the race. When I, like when I was riding first, I used to get SIS piped into my home, um, which cost me a fortune at the time. But I wanted to be able to see the replays to see where it went wrong or where I could improve. And that's where I think it's fantastic. And, and look, you know, this is the modern world that we live in. It's, you know, it's changed a lot. Social media has changed a lot of things. You know, you could say stuff on TV and unless somebody was actually recording it and played it back, they could actually hear or see what you said or what you did. Whereas now, everybody has the ability to watch, you know, on the ATR player, on the ATR website, or if you want to watch all the other stuff, you can just go back and, and watch it. So there's no hiding place now. Just interestingly, back when you first started riding, yeah. would the stewards have had a recording of every race? Because they would, they would, could you have talked your way out of it in the stewards' inquiry otherwise? Yeah, well, they did. They had, like, cameras everywhere. And, you know, that was, I can remember, that was the one thing, you know, when you go into the stewards' enforce, it was like this, like, every man's dream. It was like six TVs covering every angle. You know, if you had that in your home, you'd be delighted. So when you first started with the, the BBC, yeah. did you get any sort of formal training or was it just... There no, I, I was very lucky. Uh, John Holmes, who uh, has been my agent uh, and for a long time, he 
organised for me to go and see a guy called Rob Nothman, who does uh, Five Live radio. And Rob is brilliant. He's still uh, very much part of that Five Live racing team at the, at the National and for the Derby. And, the, uh, and that was a great grounding for me. Uh, when I stopped riding first, I had already done uh, work for BBC TV. I'd also had a contract with, with At The Races as it was then. Um, and then I went to see him and he, he definitely helped me. But, you know, look, I think if I watch stuff back now of what I was like then compared to what I'm like now, you like it's cringe worthy material, really, because you're so much more aware of stuff now, you know, maybe not as savvy then as, um, as I am now, maybe. Some people say that I'm still not savvy, but, you know, that's the way it is, really. Anyone that um, goes midweek racing, winter, probably just you and a camera. It looks like it's just you and a cameraman. Yeah. A lot of places at Newton Abbott, Exeter, those sort of places. Yeah. And then, of course, with ITV, you've got the big team. Yeah. You've got all the, so how, obviously, it's a lot different. I mean, what is it a lot less pressure when you go to the, to the midweek meetings? Yeah, I, it, it is, I suppose, but it's not something, you know, like that thing of pressure. I think pressure is something you bring upon yourself. And I think I, the way I look at it now is that I kind of feel when I'm working on TV, I'm chatting to people. So that's kind of how it is. Um, the ITV um, routine is slightly different because like Ed Chamberlain is obviously our lead presenter on the jump racing. And he's very keen, as is, you know, Richard Willoughby and Paul Cooper, who are the two editors, very keen for you to bounce the ball. You know, it's almost like a rugby pass. You have it for a short time, send it to the next person. And that's kind of the way it works. Whereas, like you say, when you're walking midweek, you're on your own. So you don't have that luxury of fielding it to somebody else. Um, and you have to do the same amount of work when you're walking for Sky as you do for ITV. And in some cases, you probably have to, you could say you, you should have to do more because there is that chance that you're going to have to talk for longer about something. So you need to know what you're talking about. And the one thing about television is, if you, if you try and bluff it, you get found out. I was going to say, the, it seems to us watching you, probably down to your professionalism, that even at you know, the midweek meeting, this rolls off the tongue, the facts and the figures are there. But yeah. How much work goes into preparing for a, a day at Exeter, uh, not Exeter, but Newton Abbott, for example? Quite a lot. Like, so the night before, I'll uh, make notes uh, on every horse, um, so that I've got a, I've got a sheet. I don't know if I've got any, any of them here. Um, and you'll see, I make notes, you know, like how many times a horse has run, how many times it's run over fences, whether it's a front runner, whether it drops in, um, ground, you know, what ground it likes, you know, all that sort of thing that is sort of ready-made, really. Um, yeah, it, it, it takes probably, it definitely takes three or four hours to do a six or seven race card to go through them because you've got to watch how horses races back, see how they're ridden. And, you know, very often now on Sky, we're asked every day we're on course, you know, we need, you need a nap. So, you, you know, you've got to look at something that you think, well, actually, I think this will win today. And you've got to make a note of it. And then, so when you're asked for your opening piece, you know, you'll do ground conditions, you'll do what to look forward to on the day. And then the next question is the one that hurts the most. And they'll say, well, what's your nap for today? So you've got to give it. And, and, more often than not, you know, it'll get beat. Sometimes it, they win. You know, I was at Force last the other day. 
last race, a very wise man once said to me, somebody asks you for a winner on the day, always give them a runner in the last. Because if you give them a runner in the first and it gets beat, they'll remind you of it all day. Uh, and it was just, you know, kind of the way it worked out. You know, I tipped the hearts of Jamie Snowden's that won in, won in the last, but that's kind of just the way it goes, you know. But I, I, I really like the midweek meetings because you get to see a lot of people and it is quite a relaxed atmosphere. Um, you know, I've got to know more people now working on race courses than I ever did when I was a jockey. Because when you're a jockey, you walk in the gate, you turn right or turn left straight to the weighing room. And then you go into your little into your little cave and you know it's almost like a big bubble when you're a jockey whereas out in the outside world it is there's a lot of people who like you say that you know are there working and doing different jobs and you never really noticed them before um no it's interesting you've, you've led me right on to my next question question um your jockey's career hopefully i got this right yeah your first winner um, in the UK, Love a Secret at yeah. Ludlow. Yeah. And the last, April 3rd, 2008, Bring Me Sunshine yeah. at Taunton. You rode yeah. a double that day. I did. Um, so there's a th uh, 1,303 winners. Yeah. How many of those would you remember? Quite a lot. Um, it's funny, I get a lot of people, had somebody come up to me actually at Force Last, the last day I was walking on track and say, oh, you rode a horse for me that Dave Evans trained. Uh, um, that I'd finished third on. I actually remembered it because I can remember it was something happening in the race and it, like very often you won't remember and I'll, I'll say, oh, look, I'm really sorry. I don't remember, but that's good because you remember the really good ones and you remember the really bad ones. And if I don't remember it, it means it wasn't too bad. I could probably recall most of the winners though. Now you must have you know, retired because you had to, but you must have yeah. retired a happy man looking back at your career because you, you rode every big winner pretty much that you could. The, the two top races, the Go Cup, Seymour Business and the Grand National Rough Quest. I mean, once the jockeys achieve those goals, is it then just a numbers game from then on? Not necessarily. Like, it, there is no place quite like Cheltenham, you know, and I know a lot of people say, oh, it's not all about Cheltenham. If you're a rider, it is because you want to ride, you know, the Supreme Novice Hurdle winner, you want to win the Ark, or you want to win the, you know, now the Ryanair has been elevated to grade one status, you want to win that race, you want to win the Gold Cup, you want to win the Champion Hurdle, you know, you want to win the Champion Chase. I always felt like they're, they're like majors in golf, you know, Champion Hurdle, Champion Chase, Gold Cup, Grand National, King George. They are kind of like the big five, as far as I'm concerned. And I was very lucky and I won four of them. Never, never won a champion hurdle, which is really annoying. Nicky Henderson has won so many champion hurdles since I retired. And in fact, the year that I retired, the following year, Punjabi won the champion hurdle for Barry Garrity and Nicky Henderson. And I can remember, it's really, the one thing that's difficult about giving up is, this is, it sounds so stupid. You actually feel like you are somebody when you're a jockey, and especially if you're doing reasonably well, you have like almost like a standing in the industry. When you stop being a jockey, that's gone. You're no longer a jockey, you're an ex-jockey. And one of the, you know, I can remember walking into Cheltenham that year in 2009, 
and feeling so empty when I walked in there. Like normally I was like so, like you, the, the butterflies in your stomach just like walking through the gates because you, the anticipation of possibly riding a winner is just off the charts. Like it really is. I cannot describe how much of a buzz there is as a rider when you walk into that place thinking you might ride a winner. Like the hairs in the back of your neck stand up just thinking about getting on that, you know, on riding a the winner there, walking into that winner's enclosure. And then to walk in there and not have it. And I can remember walking out that day after finishing my work for Five Live and going out to the car and sitting there. And like, honestly, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I sobbed like a baby because I felt like a part of me had been taken away because it was on that moment that I realized that I'm never going to ride another winner at Cheltenham. I'm never going to experience what it's like to win one of those big races. And it, like, it was horrible. And it, it was, I was almost at a crossroads there and I, it took me a little while to get over it. And I, I then realized, right, okay, you know, that's gone. You have to forget that and you have to be the best, as, be the best you can be at the job you're doing. Otherwise, you're just going to become a bitter ex-jockey. And do you think that was magnified because you didn't retire on your own terms, you retired because you had to? Uh, possibly, yes. But, you know, look, when I had my fall at Aintree, I was lying on the ground and I couldn't feel my legs or my arms. I couldn't feel anything. And I, was, I, I can remember lying there and thinking, shit. I looked at this crumpled mass on the ground beside me and I thought, literally, what is that? And then I, I saw the J.P. McManus colours and I thought, shit, that's me. And, like, I, honestly, I, nothing, nothing was working. And I, I, I can remember thinking to myself, my two lads were six months old and 18 months old at the time. And I can remember thinking, please, God, don't let this happen to me. I've got two little boys and I want to watch them play. And honestly, it... Like, you can even see now that it's, it's, it's raw. And that moment in my life changed everything. And I can remember getting the feeling back after a period of time. And my body was literally jumping because it was starting to, I don't know what was going on. And it took me a long time to get over that. And, you know, when you have that sort of trauma, I think is probably the best word to use in your life. And I then got really sick. A year later when they realized that I had MRSA quite badly um, I was in and out of hospital I had seven operations on my throat to try and repair a hole in my esophagus um, I went down to like eight stone two I thought I was gonna die like I really did I can remember lying in that hospital bed thinking this is it this is you, you're fucked you know I kept losing weight like I used to get up every morning get on the scales that was the first thing I ever did because you want to see what weight you were. I was doing that every day when I was in hospital and I was losing weight every day. And I was frightened that I was gonna die. And like, honestly, 
my like my little girl was born during all that and it was horrendous like horrendous you just and everything changes your perspective on life changes and that for me you know riding racehorses you know was just a small part of that actually living was a big deal for me at that time so you know i i got over it quite quickly the fact that i was feeling sorry for myself that i wasn't a jockey because there was a bit more to it than that Okay, Mick, but obviously that got quite emotional at the end of that last part there. Um, and I'm really sorry, but I'm going to take you back to something else that probably isn't a lovely uh, memory, which I read in your book, Better Than Sex. Yeah. Um, I read that you were bullied as a child. Mm. Now, how long did that go on for? And how much of an effect did that have on you? Yeah, well, look, you, you, when you think back of things as, as, a, as a child, you think it lasts forever at the time. So I don't know how long the period was, but it felt like a long time. And it was basically, I was, we, were, we had moved um, from one side of the country to the other and new in school. And obviously, you know, people, some people are nice to you and some people aren't. And that, that's just the way life is. And yeah, and like I, I can remember getting bullied um, and it was just, it was horrible. And I can remember coming home every night and I was in tears and, you know, and like I say, the horses were the one thing that was constant in my life. And that's why I, that's why I love animals and I love horses because, you know, they were always there. So they were always like a, a nice side of my life. Um, and yeah, like it was, it was just horrific. But it's funny, something inside you actually flips the switch and I can remember my dad had said to me he said look mate you're gonna have to sort this out yourself and I kept thinking you know why isn't why aren't they doing something about it you know why and my dad had, I can remember him saying to me he said look mate you're gonna have to sort it out yourself and I just I don't know what it was but one day just playing football I can remember he was running towards me and I basically just mowed him down and I can remember from that moment onwards I stood there on that grass and I thought nobody will ever walk on me ever again and it was like it, it, it's that you have moments in your life I think that are that define you and make you stronger and that was definitely one of those moments and you know from that moment on it almost instilled a self-belief that you can actually turn things around, you know, and that is the one thing I would always, I always say, like I, I'm a jockey coach now and I love that side of it. But very often it's trying to, you know, instill confidence into people to believe in themselves because until you really believe in yourself, you've got to make people buy into you. And that's, you know, from, from almost from that moment onwards, that was kind of my motto, you know, that right, I know, I'm good enough to do any job. All I've got to do is just get on with it. And for the layman watching, a, especially a jump jockey at work, you assume that you all have to be pretty sort of hard cases, yeah, yeah. really. Yeah. Is would you have would that have been like a moment where it, it made you a harder person? 
as in, or did the, did the would the being a jockey make you a harder person, as in physically resilient? Yeah, I think this is a tough sport, and it's not for the faint-hearted. There are days when you have to pick yourself up and you have to get on with it when you don't feel absolutely 100%. And sometimes it's mind over matter, but very often you have to basically grit your teeth and this ain't gonna beat me, you know? And, and, and that was basically how I was. You know, I always felt right, you know, I was never afraid of any man or beast because I, you know, that kind of thing is, that's the way it is. Like you, you have to believe in yourself and you can believe that you can overcome anything. And that whether that's an injury or whether it's something that's standing in your way, you know, you have to believe. And you know, once you really believe, other people buy into it and they'll believe in you as well. Like if you see somebody that is confident, assured in what they do, well, you won't, very often you won't question them. But if you see somebody that's a little bit timid and a little bit not sure, or the, you know, you've, you're not going to buy into them because you'll be wondering, mm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. You've got to be confident. Do you, you mentioned your parents in the first part. Yeah. And they were very supportive of you by yeah, the yeah. and stuff. Do you think they saw that in you and that's why they were quite happy to sort of make sacrifices so you could have what you needed? The no, no doubt. Like my, my parents gave up so much so that we could have the things that they didn't have. Um, and like my dad worked tirelessly to try and get us uh, ponies that we could we could ride, and it's you know they didn't have any money. But when I was in school, I was quite I was reasonably bright, uh, and I was doing really well in school. And I was fifteen, and I was doing my um, intercert, which is the equivalent of G GCSEs, and the principal got word of the fact that I was going to leave at the end of my exams and he came to see my parents and advised them to not let me leave school that I was going to waste an academic career um, and my dad turned around to him he was called Ronnie McCormick my dad turned around to him and he said uh, Mr McCormick this is what he wa really wants to do and this is all he thinks about so if he really wants to do it, we're going to let him do it. And, you know, as a parent now, being able to give your child that sort of freedom and that sort of backing is huge. And like, I only hope that I'm able to do it for mine like that. Um, and I can remember off I trotted. I, I still think about it now and it, like, it makes me laugh because on my 16th birthday, I got my provisional license and I had a motorbike. And on my 16th birthday, I rode my motorbike to work. It was 13 miles. And my dad said, yeah, off you go. And like to think of that now, think of like I've got a 16-year-old son. And to think of me saying to him, yeah, yeah, off you go. No experience, off you go. It's nuts. But he, like they had absolute faith in me to let me go. Um, and actually, Ronnie McCormick went to see my parents after I won the Grand National. And he said to them he said he sent me an, a note as well and he said congratulations he said your parents were right so that was lovely brilliant the, the, now your career in ireland yeah. was fairly brief yeah because you got too big and you were going to be a flat jockey yeah 
So you moved to the UK. Yeah. Um, but that career almost ended with two winners. Yeah, it, it was a funny one because I worked for, I came over to, and actually it was Stan Moore, the trainer, believe it or not. You look at him now and you think, well, he never used to ride. But actually he was the flat jockey, Stan. And he was riding for Toby Baldy in Ireland. And he came in and used the sauna in, uh, in Newbridge, where I was in there. I was in there sweating. And he said, oh, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm getting a bit big for the flat, so I'm probably going to go jumping. He said, oh, John Jenkins wants somebody. So he organized it for me to go to John Jenkins. So off I went. I was there for, what, I think nine or ten months. And I love John. Um, he's a real character, but he's a good lad. And it just wasn't happening. It was like Simon Sherwood was stable jockey. There was somebody else um, stable jockey as well. Steve Snedeckles used to ride all the horses. And Morris O'Hearn was there. So there was a, quite a few good lads there at the time. It just wasn't happening. So I said I'd leave. Richard Tucker actually uh, had an ad in the paper. I answered it and off I went. And then rode. Uh, my first ride over hurdles was the winner on, on, on Lover's Secret. And I thought, this game's easy. Why, why didn't I go jumping before? Uh, second ride finished second. Third ride won. And I thought, I fucking made it here. This is easy. And then that was it. Hit the wall. And... I just, I moved from Richard Tucker's because he didn't have any horses. I went to Ron Hodges. And there was a lot of good lads at Ron's at the time as well. And it just didn't really happen at Ron's. Maybe I probably wasn't as focused as I should have been or whatever. But anyway, it just didn't happen. But I met a really nice guy called Ray Callow and Liz Lyshen when I was there. Um, I had, I also met Andrew Nicholson, the event rider. And he's got a brother, John, who trains in New Zealand. And I, he, I saw Andrew and he said, oh, well, if you want to go to New Zealand, he said, John will have you. So I had organized a, a job and I was going to go. And I can remember thinking to myself, I'm 19, 20 years of age. I think I must have been early 20. And I thought, in 10 years time, will I look back and think I should have stayed another year? And Ray had said to me, look, you can ride a couple of mine. Got a couple of runners coming up. And I went, you know what, I'm going to stay. I'm going to give it another year and see how we get on. I can always go to John Lynn after that. And I rode a horse of Ray Callow's called Sunset Sam. And he changed everything. I won on him uh, at Ludlow. Won a selling hurdle, beat Graham Bradley, I think, and somebody else um, in quite a close finish. And then that was it. Like, it just took off. Uh, I went to work for Gerald Ham uh, in Axbridge in Somerset. And Gerald and Ray Callow basically launched my career. And away I went. Dave Roberts then became my agent. And the rest, as they say, is history. You know, like, it, it was amazing. It just went from zero to hero very quickly. And it was just amazing. Like, it was a, it was a whirlwind, really. So how did the Nicky Henderson job? Well, I was lucky. It was a merry-go-round of jockeys at the time. And Peter Scudamore retired. Richard Dunwoody hadn't been champion yet. And he was offered a pipe job. He was Nicky's jockey with David Nicholson. They were like sharing him. Then you had Jamie Osborne, who was based with Nicky at the time. He was also riding a lot for Oliver Sherwood. He was offered a Henderson job. He stayed with Sherwood because he had Sherwood and Henrietta Knight. 
Adrian Maguire was offered a job. He went to David Nicholson. Nicky Henderson then was looking for a jockey. And Tony Collins, of Gay Future fame, was a friend of mine. And he put me forward for the Henderson job. And then they obviously watched me ride and thought, well, yeah, he's not too bad. I saw Nicky at Ascot Sales. He invited me for an interview, went to see him, and he offered me the job. And did the transition from riding, let me read to any fairly moderate horses, riding the top class horses, was that sort of seamless or was there a, were you young enough not to be putting yourself under pressure? Oh, look, I was putting myself under pressure all the time. But then that's, you know, like I say, pressure is something you put yourself under. And that, that was definitely the case. And I was desperate to make an impression. Um, and the first winner that I rode for Nicky was on a horse called Billy Bathgate at Kempton. And it was the horse was owned by Michael Buckley of Constitution Hill fame. So, you know, Michael and I go back a long way with Nicky. Um, so, yeah, but the thing I loved about Nicky is he, he was so good to me. He gave me a lot of time to bed in. Uh, I thought it was going horribly wrong because I was making too many mistakes. Um, but he obviously saw that I had potential and it was worth sticking with. He arranged for me to get help from Terry Biddlecombe. And, yeah, it just really went from there. And like Nicky and I, I worked for him for 15 years. We never had a crossword. I wrote a lot of winners for him. I wrote a lot of losers for him. Never a crossword. And I was in there this morning watching the schooling. Um, he's a gentleman, you know, and I've got a lot of time for him. Is he the sort of person where you, you feel comfortable giving him your opinion without feeling that there might be a, that you might upset him? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Like we, the one thing that Nicky and I had was a very good relationship. I was very honest with him. If I gave one a bad ride, there was no hiding it. I came in and said, look, I fucked up, you know, and he, he knew that. And I think he, the great thing about us is he knew I was on his side and I knew he was on mine. And, you know, that's why we had such a healthy relationship. Right, but you mentioned uh, briefly earlier that you're a jockey coach. Yeah. And that, that's a rewarding, rewarding job. Do you think you had the best of the game as a jockey or have things improved for riders these days? I think, I think things have definitely improved because they have, there's a lot of help out there if they need it. Um, but I, I, look, the, the jockey coaching thing for me, the, the mentoring side of it is the most important part because I've had a lot of those days where you're coming back from the races and it's that silence where you're inside your own head and you're beating yourself up. That's a horrible time for any jockey. And like, you now whatever punters say, you know, when they're watching a race and they think, oh, he should have won on that. What the fuck was he doing? You know, like all that carry on. I can tell you now, when that jockey's driving home, he's asking himself that over and over and over and over and over and over again to the point of distraction. And very often you can get it wrong, but you think actually something that you did was cause the horse to get beat. Very often you watch a race cold like I can and I say, well, actually, the horse wasn't good enough. It wouldn't matter what you did. And very, when you ring them and you tell them that, suddenly it's like a huge weight is lifted off their shoulders. But for us and for a lot of riders, there, was no, there wasn't that help out there. So you weren't, you weren't that person on the other end of the phone or you weren't that person who was able to just lift that weight off their shoulders. 
So I think the mentoring side of it is huge. Yeah, one of the things that's different now um, from what we can see from recent events is that the, the weighing room used to be where it went on and it stayed. Yeah. You had a bit of a, you mentioned beating yourself up. You had a bit of a set to with Richard Dunwoody for something that happened out on the race course. Um, did those sort of altercations happen often between jockeys? Not that often. And, you know, they were normally fairly short-lived. Uh, like the trouble is, the thing with the, the Woody thing was, like, Woody, you know, did something in a race and we, we basically came back in and I basically said to him, like, what the fuck were you doing? And then he, he was blaming me. And he then... And I said something to him and then basically he threw his saddle down and just and leapt on me. Um, and then afterwards, the stewards looked into the incident and I wasn't even called in. It was him and Carl Llewellyn and somebody else that were actually called in. So in many ways, I was right because it was nothing to do with me. It was all like it was him. He tried to force himself into a gap, but that's by the by. And you know what? I think back to that uh altercation and it was a simple it, it was a bit of a case of with me I don't give a fuck who you are you know you know I didn't want anybody to be like that that was not but at the same time I'm not going to back down but I feel I do you know what I still feel bad about that because I admired Richard Dunwoody so much and so many of us riders looked up to him because he was the best. You know, he set the standard. And he set the standard then for AP coming behind him and for every other jockey. And Woody and I fell out over it. And I'm still sad about that to this day. Because, you know, I, I was, we were all in awe of him. You know, and I just wish that there was some way that I could, you know, almost repair that. Because it was never the same after that. Not even now? Not even now, yeah. Yeah, like I see Woody and we'll say hello and that's it. You know, but it was it's sad because, you know, he, he helped me when I was getting going. Um and I you know, I feel bad that it it ended like that really. was being a single minded jockey something that was quite unusual amongst jockeys? Would you sort of look after each other out of the race course? Yeah, yeah, there was there was very much a uh, a sense of like brotherhood to a degree and you kind of did look out for one another um i think that's changing a little bit well it's changing a lot you know it was it almost was like flat racing and jump racing are kind of separate because the big difference is with jump racing the guy that sat beside you whether it's whoever it is you might be ringing his girlfriend or his wife or his mother to say he's had a bad fall and how are we going to get his car home? I can remember uh, Seb Sanders got hurt one day at Chepstow on the flat and, you know, I think they were, nobody, nobody knew in the sense that they weren't used to actually looking out for him because it didn't happen that much on, in the flat game. Whereas in jump racing, people get injured all the time. So you've always got to wonder who's... And like the valets are so on top of it as well. And that's why they play a huge part in that. Trying to make sure that his family are notified that somebody takes his car home. Simple thing like who drives his car home. 
who's then going to pick him up from the hospital that night when he can't drive home? You're 200 miles away from home. Who brings him home? Like all that sort of thing that jump jockeys are looking out for each other. So because of that, you have that sense of brotherhood um, between them all. You know, and it doesn't matter whether it's male or female. You know, they're almost like your comrades, so you look out for them. And that is, you know, I, I think that's disappearing a little bit, um, which in many ways makes me, makes me sad because it is an elite group of people who are joined together by that sense of danger and the fact that your next ride could be your last. And we all say that, and you don't really believe it, but it could be. And there is that looking out for your fellow rider. Um, also, back in those days, was it still the days of tugging your forelock to the owner? Was ah, yeah, like you, you always tipped your cap, you know, very much part of that. But as well, there was, it's like all sports. Like in those days, you know, there was always, you know, it was much more social in the evenings. You know, was it less professional? Probably yes. You know, there wasn't the same jockeys weren't as fit as they are now. Um, does that mean that they're better jockeys? Not necessarily. You know, I think they're giving themselves the best chance now because they have the ability to identify areas that they can improve in. But, you know, you look back at, at bygone days, you know, you, you look at somebody like Richard Dunwoody, you could put Richard Dunwoody into any era and he'd have, he'd have risen to the top. Were there difficult owners, ones that asked you to do stuff you didn't want to do, that sort of thing, you know, back in the day? Were, did you have... Could you, would the trainer be upset if you said to upset an owner, for example? Oh, huge, yeah. Like, you... It was funny, like some, it's a tricky one, and that's why some trainers don't like it if they have, uh, owners have retained riders, because they're not in control of how the horse is ridden, because you, like if you have a retained rider, the retained rider is responsible to the person that's employing him. And then that doesn't always include the trainer. So, you know, look, a trainer likes things done a certain way, and sometimes it's, it's a way that suits them. But if you have your own retained rider, it doesn't always work. You know, and very often, you know, with Willie Mullins, like the amazing thing with Willie Mullins is, you know, apart from, um, like, Paul Townend rides everything, apart from, the, obviously, the JP-owned horses that Mark Walsh rides. You know, and, but it's, is that good or is that bad? It's the owner's prerogative. They pay the bills, so they get to choose who rides them. So, in many ways, you, I always felt I had a responsibility to the owner and the trainer, and it was an equal responsibility. And you rode for some uh, quite well-known owners. Like yeah. Your mother, for example. Yeah, I, look, that was a, uh, an, an amazing experience. And one of, the, like, one of the best days that I ever had was, uh, it was at Ascot, um, with the Ascot Chase. I won the Reynolds Town on uh, Bacchanal, and then I won the Ascot Chase on Tuchev. And I was supposed to ride one for the Queen Mother in the last. In the bumper, it was a horse called First Love, and it was favourite. And I thought it would win, but I had a tendon on my arm that had actually got damaged. And I couldn't undo the girth on the horse. For whatever reason, something happened uh, in the race when I rode back an hour. And I couldn't undo the, the girth strap. And I thought, I can't ride the horse in the last because he's strong and I won't be able to hold him. So I said to Nikki, I said, look, I'm really sorry, but I can't ride this horse in the last. I don't think I'll be able to ride it. 
And he said, right, fair enough, thanks. She's here today. And next thing I got a, one of the guys, the stewards who came in said to me, look, somebody wants to see you outside. So I was like, okay. So I went out and I thought it was the doctor. Went out and it was the, it was Nikki. And he said to me that, um, he said, Her Majesty would like you to go and watch the race with her and have a drink. So I was like, oh, okay. So I obviously showered, got changed uh, and went up to the Royal Box. And there she was on her own with her butler. And, uh, and she said to me, oh, well done. She said, I'm really sorry, you can't ride my horse. And I said, so am I. I said, I think he'll win. And she said, oh, well, that's a shame. But she said, would you like to watch the race with me? I said, I'd love to. So she said to me, she said, oh, would you like a drink? And I said, I would love a drink, actually. And, uh, and she said, oh, so she looked around and there was nothing there. But there was a bottle of champagne unopened. And she saw me looking at the champagne. She said, you'd really like some champagne, wouldn't you? And I said, ma'am, I would love some champagne. So she opened the bottle and she had a Dubonnet and red and I had champagne. And I think I must have drunk at least half the bottle myself. Um, and I had a lovely time. Like she was an amazing woman. She loved her horses and she just loved racing. We were so lucky to have her as a patron. Now you talked about the Grand National earlier on, the race that ended your career. Yeah. Um, it's, how do you feel about the race, having it provided you one of the highlights of your career and also the rock bottom? Oh, look, the National is, I think a race that, you know, it supersedes everything else because when you're a jockey, people say, oh, you know, this is Mick Fitzgerald. Um, he's a Grand National winning jockey. Everybody goes, what? You won the Grand National? Whereas if you say to somebody, oh, this is such and such, he's, he's a Derby winning jockey or he's a Gold Cup winning jockey, people go, mm, so, if they know nothing about racing. Whereas the Grand National is above all that. People will always have heard of the Grand National. And that was the one thing that I noticed when I won the race was that forevermore, I'll always be Mick Fitzgerald, Grand National winning jockey. And it is... For me, it'll always have a very special part because you are part of an elite group of people who have the ability to turn heads in the sense that you've done something that most people have heard of. Not many people can say that. And we're here, lovely house in Lambourne with horses. Yeah. See horses out the window. So you're obviously still very much involved yeah. with horses. Yeah. Have you sat on one since? I have not ridden a horse since I came off Lamy in the National in 2008. Um, I, ha I broke C3, 4, 5, 6 and 7, have quite a lot of metal in me uh, and I was advised that it's so fixed now that um, if I have a fall it'll probably be catastrophic. So after the experience that I had when I was lying on, at the back of the second fence and I couldn't feel anything, um, I just thought I cannot do that again. Now, you mentioned your two sons and yeah. daughters grown up now. Yeah. Have they shown any interest in following in your footsteps? Yeah, well, they all, they all love racing and they like going. Um, um, and they're, they're quite keen and, you know, they follow it. Um, my eldest boy doesn't ride at all. Um, my middle lad, Oscar, is, a, is very keen um, on eventing, um, loves that. And then my daughter, Lola, is very keen on that as well. So I've got two riders out of three. Um, no jockeys, though. 
they're too big. And you've got a, a famous retiree in your paddocks. Yes, we do actually, yeah, Altior. Um, yeah, and he's like, the great thing is he's doing amazingly since uh, his colic. Um, so yeah, he, like he's in great form. He's actually, the, you drove past two pens outside. This will tell you how special Altior is. I love my lawn. Altior is now on the lawn every day. Uh, not every horse gets that sort of luxury, trust me. So, yeah, I have, I've had to sacrifice my lawn for Altior. And, uh, and finally, um, is there anything you'd still like to achieve before you're in Altior's position as fully retired? <laughs> uh, is there anything I'd like to achieve? Um, I'd like to I just continue. Just, I really like what I do. You know, I love it. Um, and I love the jockey coaching side of that. And I'd like to carry on helping, you know, people on their way um, as best I can. Because like I say, being a jockey is a tough life. And it's not always about the glory of riding winners at Cheltenham or riding winners at Aintree. It's a lot of time about picking yourself up off the floor and picking yourself up off, you know, the emotional floor that is when you get beat on horses that you probably should have won on. So... You know, I'd like to carry on helping as many people as I can in that, really. Brilliant. Well, on that note, Mick Fitzgerald, thank you very much. Cheers.